you know, and I do talk about that at the end of the movie, like the t- two of the Marines who were on trial, like the younger one is sort of confused because they're convicted, right? He's like, I don't, I don't understand what happened. And the older Marine says to him, we're Marines. It's our, it was our job to protect the innocent, to protect the weak. And we failed to do that, right? That's the closing moment of the film, right? That's the, you know, that's the clincher of the film. And so then you read that back on Nicholson's character. Yeah, he's not the good guy. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. Uh, with us today is Pauline Corinne. Wren is the Stockdale Chair of Professional Military Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College and the author of the new book, On Obedience, Contrasting Philosophies for the Military Citizenry and Community. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So we do want to say up at the top that the views and opinions you express here are your own and do not reflect official policy or opinion of the U.S. Naval War College. That is the truth. So that said, uh, how does it feel to have a book out that's got a uh, a hell of a news peg? Um, yeah, it's a little it's a little weird. It's a, the it turn, the book is turning out to be a lot more relevant than I imagined that it would be. Um, I mean, these are kind of perennial issues that come up from time to time, but you know, the portions of the book that have to do with um, civil disobedience and disobedience within the military and civil relations have in the last week um, perhaps gotten more confirmation than I would have imagined when I was writing the book. Okay, so at the top here, can you because can you define obedience for me? Because I think a lot of the a lot of us hear that and we have kind of this knee jerk reaction to that word, specifically in the American context, right? Um, right. So kind of what for, for the purposes of your book and kind of the I wouldn't even call it an argument, but the like the exploration that you're making. Uh, in right. The book, what is obedience? Well, what I'm interested in the book is is what you might think of as what would count as justified obedience. So I try to make a distinction between, you know, virtuous obedience. Um, and what is normally called blind obedience, sort of I'm just following orders. I'm just doing what I'm told on one hand. And on the other hand, what uh, what Tim O'Brien, the, the famous, uh, you know, uh, fiction author who wrote the things we carried, he described his obedience uh, in going to Vietnam sort of as passive obedience. So it's not that you're really choosing it. It's a sort of the path of least resistance. So for me, obedience has to be intentional. It has to be the product of some kind of deliberation and intention, and choice. And it's also when you choose to obey, it's a judgment about the thing that you're being asked to to do. You are affirming that it at least is a reasonable uh, thing to do and doesn't violate any any sort of 
moral norms or, or moral or legal considerations. So I think it's a much narrower notion of obedience than typically uh, we have. But that's part of the point of the book is to say that not all obedience is is, is uh, morally a good thing. Right. It's not necessarily just a good thing to do what you're told. And the book, you know, certainly looks at military examples, but the idea is also to look at how it works in a civilian context. Um, and it, there's a lot of pop culture in the book, uh, but there's also stories about my children um, who are now teenagers and obedience in, in the context of parenting. So the idea is to really explore what is the kind of obedience that that we want that is a good thing and when ought we be obedient or less than obedient or when ought we be disobedient or perhaps less than obedient. Uh, One of the things that strikes me about the book and I think a lot of good kind of philosophical and ethical works feel this way is that it feels like you're working it out on the paper as you're writing it. Yeah. Right. And this is, (laughs) this is kind of like your dis it's like you had these questions on top of mind and are doing the research and, and looking through the historical and philosophical sources and kind of piecing together your own answers to these questions. I'm wondering why you were driven to tackle this subject. Like what, what was the impetus? Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, a lot of people ask me that and, uh, you know, I don't know that I have a good, clean, I, I need to construct a better narrative. Uh, but all things, as in all things in life, it's sort of messy. So first of all, I'm a parent. So um, obedience comes up a lot sort of just in my personal life. And especially as my kids have gotten older and navigating, you know, uh, the process of them becoming independent adults has me thinking about obedience. But as a moral question, it comes up a lot and I taught undergraduate philosophy for, you know, for 20 years. And so the moral questions of obedience come up when I teach Antigone, uh, Sophocles play Antigone or Shakespeare's Henry V or a whole host of other uh, sources in the history of philosophy. So especially in social and political philosophy and philosophy of law, which I teach, which I taught a lot, the question of obedience and disobedience and civil disobedience is a sort of perennial issue you talk about. Um, but then I, so I was thinking about writing a book on this and then the election of 2016 happened and I was getting a lot of um, direct messages and emails from my colleagues in the military uh, sort of posing a lot of these questions and also civilian uh, people in my civilian university asking about uh, civil disobedience. So I think the election of 2016 really crystallized some concerns that a lot of people had, especially, and I mentioned this in the book, that then-candidate Trump had said um, on the question of war crimes that, it, you know, if by command them to commit war crimes, referring to the military, they will do so, and that was a very sort of shocking statement Um to people uh, who are members of the professional military. So I think it was sort of a perennial issue, something that I found interesting. I also noticed that there wasn't really a good uh, philosophical treatment of obedience. There are good treatments of obedience from sort of a religious perspective. And then there's a civil, the civil disobedience literature. 
Um, but there wasn't a good philosophical treatment of, well, what exactly is obedience? What is disobedience? How do we define these things? And so as an academic, when you see a gap in the literature, that's always a, a lovely thing because that's something that's part of our job is to address things that are perhaps unaddressed or try to put our scholarly um, skills to use in, 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 in working through those things. But I wanted to do that in a way that was not just a scholarly book, but that was accessible to uh, people uh, in, a, in a wide uh, range of backgrounds and educational experiences who could really, you know, think about this question, which is why the way the book is constructed, there's a lot of pop culture references. There's a discussion guide in the back, so people could use that either for personal reflection or for book groups or PME or to be used perhaps in an undergraduate classroom. So I also wanted this book to be a different um a different kind of book contributing to the scholarly literature, but in a way that's more accessible. And I really like how you described, uh, you know, the feeling of the book as uh, like I'm working through these questions along with the reader. And that was, I, I wanted to write the book in a way that would replicate what happens in my classes. And that was the intention of the book that it would feel like you were in class with me and we were, working together through these issues and we'd maybe had some common readings and, and some discussion and I would give my scholarly views of things, but also invite you to think about what you think, which is what happens in, in my classroom. It's speaking of your, speaking of your classrooms and maybe this is different, different because you're, because of where you're teaching. But, uh, you know, when I hear the word obedience, I have a very, what I think of American knee jerk reaction to it. Um, like it's mostly pejorative. I immediately go to civil disobedience as being a very American and, and like the ethical and moral thing to do. <laughs> right. I think of Henry yeah. David Thoreau. I think of the, the civil rights movement. Um, you think of Gandhi. Uh, why is it important to also look at like, what are, what are your thoughts on that specifically in the kind of the American context? And why is it important to consider also obedience and, are there times when civil disobedience towards power is also kind of in a weird way being obedient towards uh, the greater social contract? Yeah. So there's a lot kind of um, packed in there. And I think as Americans, I mean, our American narrative is born out of um, acts of civil disobedience um, from throwing some tea into the, you know, the Harbor, which is, um, property destruction, uh, one needs to be reminded. Um, you know, so our, our national birth narrative is, is rooted in, in disobedience. Um, and, and, and through a variety of authors and experiences, we, you know, we think of this idea of rebellion or obedience is, or disobedience is something that is maybe not particularly American, but it is very, you know, American, um, and so I think it's, it's something we, we, we pride ourselves on. And I think that that's somewhat of the, you know, reaction when we think about, uh, the Nuremberg trials. We wanted to be able to say, uh, to people, well, no, uh, just saying you were just following orders is not adequate. And so I think there is this piece in American history that, uh, probably rooted in, in the revolution, but also in the philosophical text of the revolution that uh, disobedience to some political powers at times can be obedience to 
natural law or to other kinds of moral considerations like justice. And if you look at what's going on in the streets right now, I think that's the argument that people are making. There is some disobedience that is that is going on, but the argument is that it is, you know, as Martin Luther King Jr. said in his letter uh, uh, from the Birmingham jail, right, that it, he's appealing there to uh, we, what we're disobeying is injustice or we're disobeying unjust laws, which is a kind of obedience then to uh, a higher just order or to our maybe our obedience to our obligations to one another as citizens or within the military profession. So there's different so ways of thinking about what is it that you're being obedient to and what is it that you're being disobedient to. Right. I, I feel like obedience is at the center of a lot of what we're seeing right now. Um, police demand obedience, and they often use violence to extract it. And it feels as if people uh, are now demanding a different kind of obedience from the police. And we're seeing the, the conflict between those. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot more going on. Um, but... Do you think, I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase this. Um, what would you add, what, what would you want a police officer to take away from your book? Um, that obedience has to be justified, right? You don't, I don't just get to say to my children, you must obey me because I am your mother, even though I use that line a lot, right? But it's, it's sort of joking, right? Because that's actually not obedience, that's deference. And in the book, I make a distinction between deference and respect. And then very often, both in, in a, the police context, we also find this in, in the military as well, that hierarchies produce a need for or desire for deference. I want you to do what I tell you or to show me what I think of as respect. Uh, not in virtue of something I've earned, but in virtue of that I hold a position or that I hold an office, even if I'm really bad at that office. So, it, you know, when it comes to deference, I'll use sort of the Queen of England, right? It doesn't matter if she's good at being queen or not, right? The idea is we're supposed to give her deference because of the office or the position that she holds. And I think that you see that especially in, in police forces where the, the culture is very toxic. Some of the responses we're seeing in the street are responses by police officers who expect deference. Um, and when they receive anything that doesn't look like their notion of deference, and that is taken as disobedience um, and then must be, uh, must be addressed usually with force. So, um, I would hope that some police officers would read my book and take away that obedience has to be earned. And in fact, in one of the chapters, I argue that obedience is actually a, a negotiation, the negotiation of authority, um, which anyone who has teenagers will appreciate that that's exactly what's going on. Um, but it's also something that happens in the, in the military. You can only have command authority if, if the people you are commanding really allow you to. And I think that one of the things that we are seeing right now in the streets is a renegotiation of what in the military we call command authority. Um, in, in political circles, we might think of it as a renegotiation of the legitimacy of state power um, as 
if we think about the police as one instantiation of that. Um, but also the political authorities, whether it's the president or other people, are, are finding that that they're having to renegotiate the bounds of whatever authority they can they can wield or not. And so I think that's a core piece of obedience. Obedience is not blind, it's not passive, and it's not uncritical. In fact, I use the term critical obedience in the book. It's something we should think about and it should be given. And I, I don't want to make it sound like it's always a bad thing. We need obedience to function. Uh, in, in a political society, I need a, obedience for my household to function. The military needs obedience for it to function. But not all kinds of obedience are necessarily good. Um, and so the question then becomes, what kinds of obedience are good and necessary to society? And then what do we do when that's not what is happening or that's not what is being asked for? Right. This kind of this ties into the conception of obedience as a virtue, right? Uh, right. Which I think comes, which I think loads it down with some important implications. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, one of the, I mean, for something to be a virtue, going back to Aristotle and virtue ethics, is a it's a it's a character or quality that we would expect in a moral person, or from Aristotle, a moral community. So saying something is a virtue is saying it's something that we want people to do, we want people to cultivate. Um, and so it has to have some kind of uh, intrinsic good, it has to have some kind of uh, good to it. Um, so that's kind of um, that's kind of the first piece. But then virtues in Aristotle are, are not, I decide this is a virtue, that's a collective decision and negotiation about what that virtue looks like. Um, Aristotle said we're all political animals. And what he meant by that is we're, you know, we exist in a polis, we exist in a political community, and it's that political community that gives rise and supports our, our, our morality or our virtue. So that's the first piece. The second piece that I try to bring into this account of obedience is some concepts from just war theory, which is the idea that, you know, uh, Certain kinds of, of force or certain kinds of things have to have justification. And I think obedience, which very often, especially in the case of both the military and the police forces, comes with at least potentially lethal um, force, has to be justified. Um, and so I use some of the concepts in, in just war theory, like proportionality and reasonable chance of success, uh, as ways that we judge whether or not we should give our obedience. So on the ch in the chapter on negotiation, talk about some, you know, the mutinies on the Western Front from, from French troops in World War I, when they essentially decided that they were being asked to fight battles, there were no, that there was no hopes of winning, um, and that would not, uh, you know, conclude the war. And, and so you had lots of disobedience, disobedient acts that ultimately culminated in outright mutiny. And what the French leadership found out was they had to basically renegotiate the terms of command obedience. Otherwise, their soldiers wouldn't fight. Um, and so I think that that shows us that obedience is, is a much more complicated thing than we normally think of it. And so I think it's interesting 
to explore. I hope the book asks people to think about where their lines are and, and what they would obey and what they would disobey. Well, and I think a lot of people are asking themselves that question right now, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it just to be, it's just like you think of it as this given thing, um, but the book really asks people to just kind of cons- to even to think about it and to really consider uh, kind of this precious thing that when you are in a position of power over other people, you you know there is this negotiation there, and it shouldn't just be blind obedience should not be the norm. We should be thinking about these things actively. So. If you are an officer in the military or if you are a police officer, um, how do you make sure – how do you train this these two groups of people to consider these questions and be thinking about obedience in this way? Um, yeah, that's a great question. That seems to be the sort of million-dollar question right now. Um, I think part of it has to be you need to think about the culture of your institution. And if the culture of your institution is built on some is built on deference or it is built on that it is the use of or the threat of lethal force that gets you respect or gets you your authority. If that's how you think about things. So sort of the we're all familiar with the sheepdog, you know, narrative like I'm here to of the sheep and all that kind of, that, you know, that talk, Dave Grossman killology Dave Grossman, bullshit. Right. That whole thing. That's a very toxic narrative. Um, and if you think of obedience and, and, and commanding obedience in those terms, uh, we're already in trouble before we even get started. So I think people who train and educate, uh, military people like I do or, or police officers like some of my colleagues do, we have to really engage them in in thinking about where the bounds of obedience are and that they are not entitled to blind obedience. They are not entitled to uncritical obedience. They're not entitled to passive obedience. It does not come with the office that this is something that has to be earned and has to be constantly negotiated and, and maintained. And I think that you know, the police officers and military people who do this well, and there are certainly, um, you know, examples of that. If you follow Patrick Skinner's Twitter feed, you, you see that there. Um, it's a constant daily negotiation of, of making sure that that, that respect, uh, that justification for, for, for the obedience is, is there. Um, and we see the same thing in warfare because if people view the, the war or the action as, unjustified as military is required uh, uh, to disobey unlawful orders and there's a reason for that right you don't get to commit war crimes there are certain things you don't you simply do not get to do um, and so I think it's worth thinking of having people think about the culture of their organizations and the narratives that they use to think about their power and their role in society, uh, because I think there are a lot of uh, toxic narratives. I mean, we're finding out now that both the police force and the military have a white supremacist problem. Um, I think that's indicative of certain kinds of toxic, you know, elements or, or narratives within both of those communities, which is not to say all members of those communities are that way. Uh, but when you have narratives like that, it's worth thinking about um, 
what kind of obedience are you asking and is that justified? And there's a long philosophical tradition of saying that blind and uncritical obedience is simply not morally justified. And in fact, so I was, um, you know, uh, watching uh, a documentary on Charles I of England who got his head lopped off because he asked for uncritical obedience from the parliament. And they said, no, um, you have to consult us. I mean, there's a, a historical example where literally command authority was renegotiated. And in one case, uh, unconditional obedience was repudiated through regicide, through killing of the king. So these are issues that are sort of and those issues are still with us because the issue between Charles and the parliament was the question of taxation. Right. And, and who who could raise money? And, and who had to answer to whom? We're still, you know, it's the executive versus the legislative branch. And we're, we're still wrestling with those issues today, right? Literally today. I mean, sp- speaking of those issues, I think the latest news is that uh, the National Guard is being recalled, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the the framing I have seen of this in the news uh, is kind of played out. You know, there's so much that's been going on. Sometimes it's hard to keep track. Uh, the way I saw this played out is that Trump blustered and deployed, um, and kind of before and during that, uh, military brass wrote a bunch of letters and memos and talked to the press and said, "This is bad." Essentially, right? Um, yeah. And I was wondering what you – I wanted to kind of get your reaction from the from those official memos and letters. Uh, I think the one from General Milley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was probably the most interesting, um, probably the most kind of direct. Uh, what, what, what do you make of these and do you think that these are – I mean obviously they, they must have done something, right? Because we have this idea that Trump is immovable and will just do whatever the hell he wants, Right. Uh, but this seems to be an instance where he was the generals actually made him back down, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a case of once again that obedience is negotiated. Um, yeah, and this is an interesting case. I would, you know, I have many uh, civ mill uh, colleagues at the War College who have been writing the last week. I don't think they've slept at all um, about this issue because we have civilian control of the military. Uh, and the military is used in certain ways. And because of our history, uh, it is used in it, the idea is that it is not to be used against our own populace. And of course, the reasons for that are rooted in the revolution. But they're also rooted in the English revolution that I just uh, alluded to. So the notion so National Guard troops are often can be used in, in this capacity. But I think the real uh, concern was when Trump announced that active duty, in other words, normal, not non-National Guard troops, uh, were going to be deployed. And that is sort of, uh, you know, crossing a Rubicon, literally, kind of situation um, that caused a lot of um, uh, consternation because of the potential that you could have active duty, regular military troops potentially firing on or targeting their own civilian population. And it doesn't matter to me whether it's with rubber bullets or lethal force, you're still targeting people, you're still treating people as an adversary, as a combatant in a war. And of course we had Tom Cotton's, you know, op-ed piece, which was essentially calling for that. And that's very 
troubling from the standpoint of the military profession uh, because members of the profession take an oath to uphold the Constitution. Um, and so these, you know, a lot of these norms are seen as part of the military profession, also as constitutional norms. So I think this was sort of, uh, I think for Trump, it was an attempt to sort of look tough. And if the governors can't handle this, then I'm going to call in the military um, and to perhaps answer some, you know, concerns about, you know, some of the looting and, and violence that had accompanied some of the protests, although that's largely, uh, I think, almost exclusively disappeared by this point. But if we're looking at things last Monday, I think that that was a concern. But I think both from the military and also civilian people, you know, looked at that move and said, no, uh-uh, no, no, we're not. I mean, and it was pretty... It, even a, across partisan lines, which is unusual in this day and age, there wasn't sort of an immediate reaction. That's because of our history, I think, and because of how Americans look at obedience. No, you're not going to have, you know, you know, it's bad enough having us have to watch police brutality. We're not going to watch our own military, especially not regular military, as opposed to National Guard, who have been called out during the civil rights movement, the National Guard was called out in situations, similar situations. So that's not unprecedented. But the notion of having regular military in the streets, let's say, of Washington, there's just kind of this visceral reaction that showed, I think, where the lines of obedience were for people. And I heard from a lot of military people who were asking the question, what will I do if I'm asked to fire on my own on my own co-citizens like like I don't think I can do that I don't think I should do that and if, if that were to happen that would produce a major moral quandary I think for many people so I think the you know the the former military coming out was important but then you have someone like Millie writing this memo just basically reminding everyone okay kids here's the parameters of our profession and and I don't think that was a a memo just for the audience of one. It was a, it was a memo for the forces as well, but, but, uh, it was also perhaps a, a reminder to the, to the commander in chief, here are the limits of your authority. And, and we saw lots of uh, military people, um, veterans, uh, retired people, as well as, um, other people coming out and, and making the same point. So it was a really, I, I tweeted, Last week that I that, you know, as a scholar, I was kind of thrilled that my uh, my the core thesis of my book had not been disputed or had not been refuted at this point. But, of course, feeling awful that this is, you know, that this is even happening for for, for, for that um, for that feeling. So but it is really interesting to, to think about through the lens of obedience. And I think we have a few cases where Trump has floated something. And when he gets pushed back, especially if it's very strong pushback and if it's pushed back from the right quarters, he doesn't back, back off. So you can see this negotiation happening, at least with certain kinds of issues, maybe not with all issues. But what are those other places? Um, it, it tends to have to do with the military. So the, I, I referenced during the campaign when he said, you know, uh, you know, people will commit war crimes for me. And the military establishment came out and said, and lots of other people came out and said no. And he backed off of that claim pretty quickly. 
right? Um, so there's been a, a so they tend to be those kinds of very, they tend to be where he's pushing a norm that's widely held across partisan lines, um, and and then get and then get some pushback. But some of that is also, I think, the Trump administration tends to sort of float trial balloons. They they you know through an anonymous source leak that oh they're thinking about this and um, and then and then you start to get uh, some pushback. I think some of the movement of as we've watched through the, the administration work through COVID. You know, initially it's, oh, this is no big deal. It's not a problem. We don't need testing. We don't need a lockdown. But then as things, you know, in that case, as, as um, evidence emerges, as events on the ground overtake uh, things, then, then there, there's a shift, right? You know, they're not able to maintain certain kinds of positions. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something we can see, right? The negotiation of, of, of obedience and what those, lines of authority are, which is not to say I don't want to come across as Pollyannish here. Like um, one would wish that the norms were not tested in, in such a way, but in certain cases, and I think this week was a pretty clear refutation of that. No, you're not to use military troops against your own populace. Like people were just like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. Yeah. I have to confess to my own kind of cynical reaction to these letters as they were initially rolling out. Uh, you know, I saw them and I was like, okay, well, they, this is, this is the, the CY, the cover your ass moment, right? They're, they're getting these things in writing now so they can, so, you know, six years down the line when we're, when we're litigating all of this, they have something right. to point to. Uh, and, and, but then he pulled the National Guard out, um, which was a moment of small hope for me. Um, and I think yeah, so perhaps your cynicism is not entirely unwarranted, but every once in a while, like, you know, maybe there are norms that maybe out of altruism or maybe out of pure self-interest, one could argue there are certain norms that the military uh, needs to function, right? right? So that this is both a moral commitment on their part. It's also a self-interest, right? They're a profession, and if they can't, regulate themselves if they can't maintain the standards of their profession, then they're going to be in trouble. I think you see that with the policing profession right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The communities are saying, okay, guess what? We're going to pick your favorite term, defund you or limit your authority, or we're going to potentially disband your unions. I mean, this is what happens when a profession does not sort of police its own boundaries and sort of allows itself to, um, to break norms and to break that trust. I mean, a definition of a profession is that it serves the common uh, good. It serves the society. And when you fail to do that in certain important ways, then the society says, and part of profession is you're given special permission. Um, the police and, and the military get to do things that the rest of us don't get mm-hmm. to do. They, they, have given, a, they have a monopoly on legitimate violence, right? They do. Right. But it's given with the idea that there's expertise there, uh, that they will self-regulate and that they will serve the society. They act as agents of the society, not as their own, not in their own interest. And when that is breached, then you find the society saying, nope, guess what? We're taking back those permissions. Um, And so I think we're seeing that pretty clearly with the 
um, if you think of policing as a profession, we could debate whether it is or not. Um, but if you think of policing as a profession, I, I think you, you see that. That's what's going on right now is people are like, uh-uh, nope. It's time to sort of renegotiate the terms of the contract. What is it if it's not a profession? Um, so in the book, I talk about uh, Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosopher, who wrote a book called After Virtue. Um, he talks about communities of practice. Um, and so there could be a range of communities of practice. Uh, and a profession is on the sort of most restrictive end of a community of practice. Uh, but there might be other kinds of communities of practice that maybe don't rise to the level of, of a profession. A profession typically has to have special permissions, serve the common good, uh, has to be self-regulating, has to demonstrate certain kinds of of expertise. Um, so historically, it's the military, the medical uh, profession, the legal profession, clergy historically were considered a profession. I think generally uh, policing is considered a profession, but certain other things like maybe education uh, may not be considered a, a profession, but they're still a community of practice. Um, so national security People, there might be a debate about whether they're a profession. I think most people would say they're not, but they're certainly a community, a community of practice that has shared understandings and perhaps shared education and, and goals and identities and functions together uh, in a certain way. Um, so even if it's not a profession, we can still talk about the community of practice as a way of thinking about, you know, what they are as a as a collective. When is disobedience a moral choice? Or I guess um, the correct moral choice to be more correct, I would say it's always a moral choice, yeah. but when is it? So maybe the question is when is, is it the question is when is disobedience morally justified or? Yes, is it, there, that's the, that's the better, that's the better version of the question. Thank you. Thank you for so, workshopping this with me. <laughs> uh, happy to, just like class, right? Um, disobedience tends to be morally justified, at least in my argument, uh, when when we meet some of the 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 you know the the criteria, especially the just war criteria. Um, so disobedience, especially civil disobedience. I mean, we have to look at what is the intention. Um, is the intention of me disobeying the law just to get out of paying taxes, which I don't like to do because I would rather spend that money in shoes, or is the intention to refuse to pay my taxes to sort of make a larger point because I think the government is using my tax money for immoral ends? So is there a just cause? Am I protesting against the legitimate authority to, to make a point to my fellow citizens, typically disobedience is either to raise consciousness about a moral issue or it's to actually change one's co-citizens' minds. So there might be different sort of stages of, of disobedience, especially civil disobedience. But I think disobedience is justified generally, uh, and it has to be quite serious, right? So there's, you know, criteria in just for like last resort, like have you tried other things before you engage in, in, in disobedience, 
right, to change uh, what the what the system is. Um, but this idea that it's something it's something that's morally significant perhaps has not been amenable to change at this point. And usually for most people, it has to be some kind of serious moral or justice issue. So if we look at the civil rights movement, right, um, you know, blacks and, and other marginalized communities had failed to be able to exercise their political rights in other ways. And there was a long history of, of trying to renegotiate those boundaries and it being refused, um, often with violence in the Jim Crow South, for example. Right. And so it gets to a point where the injustice is so egregious that one has to disobey the law in order to make the moral point or not be complicit in a moral system in an immoral system, which in the military case, disobeying an un- unlawful order, say uh, uh, an order to commit a war crime is, is to refuse to participate in an act of immorality or illegality. Um, but generally when it comes to disobedience, it needs to be over a fairly sort of uh, significant issue. So I think, I think I tell this story in the book. So my, Kids are home alone, and the rule is they are not to leave the house when they are home alone. My oldest falls down and and hits his toe, and his toe starts bleeding uh, pretty profusely. And my younger son, uh, who has limited first aid skills, decides that he is going to leave the house and go to the neighbor's house to get help because there's no landline in the house. Um, So he disobeyed our rule. Right. But he disobeyed it. I think we would all agree for a good reason. Like the situation was serious enough. If my son just fell down, like bruised his toe, that would not justify the disobedience. But this was sort of a, you know, there's a large amount of blood. It was clear that it was a serious enough situation and he didn't have other resources to deal with to deal with the situation. Right. And so he disobeys so that he can go get help, not because he wants to leave the house to go play video games with his friends but disobeys to, to, to achieve some end that we would agree is moral. So I think a lot of the discourse around things like civil disobedience and disobedience within the military are around those questions of, of justification and, and what is at stake. And that it's not just, I'm not going to pay my taxes because I want to buy more shoes. I think we would all look at that and say, yeah, that's, no, that's not a good reason. Some of this is that, these judgments are not individual judgments alone. They're also communal judgments. So uh, I think that that's part of part of it. We would say, okay, yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. Civil rights is a is a is a good reason to disobey, right? How do you think we got? How did you think we got to a place where the police are not considering these questions, where it is about deference? I know that's a big question, and it's kind of one of the ones yeah. we've been asking. Our, everyone's asking themselves this week. How long do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of things going on, right? So some people have talked a lot about the militarization of the police, um, which I view more as an issue of what is the culture of policing become, particularly since nine eleven. Um, and some of that perhaps has to do with the global war on terror and the, you know, diminishing uh, boundaries between the military and the police where 
you know, when people get out of the military, they're being hired onto police forces, and so bringing perhaps a military sensibility to the police. Um, but you also have, I think, a breakdown and a continued breakdown in social fabric, where if you talk to police officers, um, and I have former students who are police officers, they're asked to deal with all kinds of things that perhaps they aren't equipped to deal with. They are they're called to stress calls with where someone is mentally ill or where there's domestic violence or where there's a homeless person. In other words, they're, they're, they're dealing with all of these really social problems, but you're bringing a person with a gun uh, and perhaps a militarized uh, and threat mentality into a context where the use of force uh, might be their first option because of how they're trained. But, that is not necessarily the best first option in that context. And this is the same argument and discussion we have with using the military for um, military humanitarian interventions, right? You have people who are trained for combat having to go in and do something that doesn't, isn't necessarily what we think of as conventional uh, combat. And so I think this is something that both of those communities have, have struggled with. We also have, as we've talked about, you know, you have, um, segments within both these communities where you have white supremacy, where you have what um, some people, I know people don't like the term toxic masculinity, but there is a certain culture of masculinity, uh, which the research shows has toxic effects um, that that can be part of, of policing this, you know, I have a gun, so you will give me respect because I have a gun as opposed to you giving me respect because I've earned your trust as a member of the community, those kinds of things. So I think there's a lot of things going on. Um, and some of it is the what police are asked to do and asked to sort of deal with. And I also think there's sort of, um, I mentioned this, my social media feed in, in regard to something else, but I think Americans like the easy button. So the Staples commercial, where it's the red button and you have a problem you can't solve and you just hit the easy button. I think as an American society, we like the easy button. So when we don't know what to do, we call the police or we send in the military. And so I think that's also kind of a larger problem. The police is designed, the policing is designed for a very specific kind of, of thing. Um, and they are good for that thing. You know, when I've been raped or when someone has broken into my house or someone is holding me at gunpoint, like that's who I should call because that is what they are for. You know, if my neighbor who is mentally ill or upset is, is, is shooting off fireworks in the street and not really endangering anyone, they may not be the best person to call. So some of it is also becoming more savvy about our social problems and, and stop trying to use the easy button for everything. We need to be, um, you know, properly funding education and, and all kinds of health care and all kinds of, of social services in all communities and, and police need to, and the police who are doing things well are, are engaged in, to, in community policing. They get to know the members of their community. They're part of the community. Um, they're not they don't view them as adversaries. I mean, I think that just the fact that many police officers refer to people like me as civilians is problematic. Right. Because that's a language that's a warfare language because we have civilians and we have or non-combatants and we have combatants. 
And so for members of my community to refer to me in that way already sets up a relationship that is where there's separation um, between us um, and a certain mentality uh, that I see that I think we are seeing it, you know, play out in all of those horrible videos that that are circulating on, on social media, police brutality, right? There's no, you know, there's no reason for, for those. So I think that that's, I think there's lots of complicated reasons and my sociologist colleagues could probably help us with understanding those reasons. But I think a lot of it just has to do with how the culture of policing has developed and emerged, let's say, in the last 25, 30 years, um, which is a choice. We can we can undo that. We can change that. No, I think you're you're right. Um, I think Rosa Brooks wrote a really great book kind of about how, uh, what was it called, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, uh, yeah. which has been, you know, that she kind of says that in the, in the modern war zones, uh, American soldiers are asked to be lawyers with guns. In um, right. yeah. that we've seen that trickle down into our communities, and these as these police officers, not only you know, like there there are there's ex military in them, they get a lot of military surplus. They look to the military kind of for uh, to set standards for them. Yet they do not have near the amount of training or expertise that the American military does. Um. And so, yeah, you you end up uh, coupled with that. Uh, I think I saw the 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 chief of the Dallas PD. I believe that was him saying that, kind of confirming that some of this is the problem. That you know they've been asked to do a bunch of things that would normally have been the purview of other parts of the community. Uh, like now, Dallas PD is being asked to like round up stray dogs. Why is that their job? Right. Yeah. Uh, that's. Right. It's going to lead to all kinds of problems. So I think that that kind of uh, I think you're right. A complicated complicated issue of which these things are all parts, right? Um, Absolutely. And there's just a dynamic of when someone with a gun shows up in right. a situation, right? Even if that's not your intention, right? That that you know freaks people out. It, it produces certain reactions uh, mm-hmm. very quickly. Which then, if you are trained to respond to those kinds of reactions in a maximal kind of way, right? It's not going to take a genius to figure out how this is going to go south very quickly. Right. Yeah, I think, and I'm sure not everyone will agree with me, but I think that there is an implicit threat of violence when there is a gun on someone's holster, whether that's, you know, and that also goes for all of the people marching around open carry. In, in all parts of uh, the country. Um, people are afraid of you because there is an implicit threat of violence. You have a, a weapon that can take a life very easily. And that changes the dynamic of who you're interacting with. Um, right. It just does. Whether you're a cop or a civilian. We are going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to War College. We are on with Pauline Corinne talking about her book on obedience. So at the at the beginning, we kind of talked about some pop culture examples, and I thought it would be I would kind of interested to know, uh, other than Antigone uh, trying to bury her poor brother, um, what else do you look at to kind of help frame this for people in the book? 
So I spent a fair amount of time looking at Henry uh, William Shakespeare's Henry V because there, you know, there's a famous dialogue in there where the night before the Battle of Agincourt, some of the soldiers are actually questioning whether or not Henry has a just cause, and unbeknownst to them, he's in disguise in the discussion. So there's this interesting kind of debate there. Um, it's so the I use undercover that. boss moment of Shakespeare. Yes, the undercover, um, and so that's sort of a classic. Um, scene, uh, especially in terms of military obedience. Um, but we also have things like, you know, the, the, the classic film, A Few Good Men, where you have, you know, Jack Nicholson's character who, who basically, you know, tries to make the claim that, you know, I'm doing the things you don't want to do. And so you need to sit down and be quiet civilian because you don't know what you're talking. He's sort of like the incarnation of Grossman's like, that kind of sheepdog mentality, I think. Um, so there's several movies that I talk about in, in the film or in the, in the book that, that can be useful in, in sort of thinking through I these think, things. The fifth is a, is a big one and Antigone is interesting, but also, you know, in the philosophical tradition, Socrates uh, at one point is, is convicted and, and is sentenced to death and, uh, is given the chance to escape, and he refuses to do so. And he says to do so would be 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 disobedient to Athens as a state. So there's lots of, you know, uh, different kinds of examples that that you could look at. I think you you lighted on one that I think is very interesting uh, that I want to talk about a little bit more. And maybe you and I have already talked about this, or Kevin and I have, which is possible. The uh, the the Jack Nicholson, yeah. a few good men speech, yeah. um, because. I've never seen that file. Like that clip is taken out of context uh, and reshared on Facebook walls <laughs> across the damn country, um, and no one ever, you know, no one ever follows it up with, uh, you know, the immediate thing that happens afterward where he gets arrested, right? Yeah. Um, they're completely taking that speech out of context and not really understanding how he's the villain of that story. It seems. <laughs> and at the and it doesn't you know and I do talk about that at the end of the movie like the t two of the Marines who were on trial like the younger one is sort of confused because they're convicted right he's like I don't I don't understand what happened and the older Marine says to him we're Marines it's our it was our job to protect the innocent to protect the weak and we failed to do that right that's the closing moment of the film right that's the you know, that's a clincher of the film. And so then you read that back on Nicholson's character. Yeah, he's not the good guy. Right. Um, and, and it, you know, his character is designed to demonstrate a certain kind of, you know, arrogance and insularity and the idea that because I am a member of the military, I can break rules. I can break laws. I can, you know, I don't have to. Because a trial is he's being asked to answer to the civilian mm -hmm. or military justice. He's being asked to answer for his actions. And he basically pulls a Charles the first and says, yeah, I don't have to defend anything to you. And the justice system embodied by Tom Cruise's character, one of the few Tom Cruise, you know, characters I actually like basically says, actually, you do have to answer to us, right? You work for us. We are your boss. And then the end of the movie has the two Marines coming back and, you know, re-articulating that what went wrong 
was that they failed to protect one of their own, but more importantly, they failed to protect someone who was who was weak and vulnerable. They failed in their moral obligation as as Marines. So it's an interesting sort of juxtaposition, right? But very often, as you said, that meme is shared to to lift up of that sort of sheepdog, like, you know, you civilians are not fit to judge me, which is, of course, ridiculous because they work for us. You know, if Jack Nicholson were a real person, like, I pay his salary, he works for me. Um, so he does, in fact, have to answer to me. So, yeah, so what you're saying is really interesting, the way in which that particular meme and other ones like it um, get used. Um, I mean, I think a better, yeah, I think a better uh, film, and I, it, one I talk about a little bit in the book, but not as much as I would like to, is um, is Bruce Willis's character in the film The Siege, which is was made before 9-11, but it basically asked the question of what would happen if there was a, a terrorist attack on, in New York. Um, and there's... So Denzel Washington and... Denzel Washington. Um, uh, uh, Stanley Tucci, maybe? Not Stanley yeah, Tucci. Uh, uh, I have forgotten Anne's name, Anne's last name. Um, Bancroft. But, no, not Bancroft. No, I know who you're uh, talking. I can see your face. Anyway, yeah. this is not interesting okay. podcasting. Uh, let's talk. But is, the siege is. But, but the siege is interesting because there's this, you know, what, you know, this, there's an imposition of, of martial law, right? And there's this conflict between Denzel Washington's character and Bruce Willis's character, and Bruce Willis sort of is, is representing maybe a more nuanced view of the Jack Nicholson character, sort of, but a character who, who says to people, you don't want, you don't want me to come in and you don't want to declare martial law because this is a blunt instrument. Well, you know, you, you don't know what you're asking for. So I think that's an interest. So I wish people would like watch less of that meme, or if they do watch the whole, a few good men movie, but then also watch the siege, which is another sort of, uh, you know, there are questions of obedience and there too, lots of questions of obedience there too, and some of the same Civ Mill questions, but I think in a little more interesting and, and you know, nuanced kind of way. Uh, does this speak to, as kind of something to go out on, the military-citizen duality you talk about towards the end of the book? Yeah, it, 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 definitely, it definitely does because you know, part of what I talk about in the book is, um, you know, military veteran exceptionalism, the idea that perhaps they look at themselves, some members of those communities look at themselves, and civilians might look at themselves as sort of super citizens, right? So, you know, the the discourse around having having vets run from for Congress, which they're certainly allowed to, um, but there's this idea of, well, you know, they are better suited to serve in Congress to make judgments about national security because they've served, right? Um, well, they may have a certain kind of expertise, but that's only one kind of expertise that a senator or a congressperson uh, might might need. So it's worth us thinking about, you know, what is the relationship between the military and the civilian communities and, and what are the conceptions of, of citizenship? Um, going on there. I'm not less of a citizen because I haven't served in the military. 
Um, and, and so I think that there is a kind of dangerous um, and you see this on a lot of social media pages. And anytime I weigh in on anything military, I will get uh, sort of trolls uh, and troll adjacent people, usually male in my feed saying, uh, A, you're a woman and B, you're a civilian. Sit down and be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. You you do not get to weigh in on whether we should invade uh, Iran or, or whatever the issue of the day is. So I think there's a way that we need to start to reconceptualize the relationship between the military and, and, and the civilians. And also civilians have have an important role. We've, I think people have ceded a lot of power to the military, There's a lot of deference to the military. Well, we'll let them decide what to do. And it's like, well, no, we have civilian control of the military for a reason. So, I mean, those are some of those issues. And that comes up in the, in, in the movie, The Siege. There's a sort of a famous scene where Denzel Washington says, his character says to Bruce Willis, his character, you can't shred the Constitution to save it. Right. And the point he's making there is we have to preserve these constitutional norms, even in this sort of moment of extremity. Um, so and I think that, you know, that certainly um, although the film was made before 9-11, those of us who lived through 9-11 can see those themes there. But there's still, you know, even in, in what's going on right now, I think there's sort of, you know, there's echoes there. So it's a it's a really great movie, I would um it's a net benning, I think. Yes, it's a it's a net benning and uh, Tony Shalhoub. Yes, absolutely. And so there's interesting themes around ethnicity too, because there's a question of you know Arab Americans being sort of rounded up. Sort of. Well, they yeah they uh, it, it just give people kind of an idea because nobody's seen this thing, um, unfortunately, because it was re- it was released in 1996 and it was or 98 yeah. and it was a huge box office disaster. Um, yeah, and the critics panned it. Um, <laughs> and it's you go back and watch it now, and it's uh, it's creepy. It's creepy, You're like dude. Yeah. Is, yeah. Tony Shalhoub, I believe, plays an Arab FBI agent who is one of the people that is rounded up and put in an internment camp after uh, after uh, Islamic attack on in New York City. Right. Um, there's a lot of creepy parallels in that movie. Yeah. Uh, it just came out, you know, just a few years before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's definitely worthwhile and there are these questions of obedience and professionalism and you know all of those things so as much as i love a few good men i think the siege is a is a more perhaps nuanced treatment and even bruce willis's character who is sort of the bad guy right Mm -hmm. uh, still has i think what is a more nuanced and complicated portrayal of that kind of character and that kind of perspective. So I definitely commend it to your viewers or to your listeners. Sorry. Uh, all right. I think that's a good place to end. Pauline Corinne, thank you so much for coming onto the show and walking us through these, this complicated topic. Uh, the book is on obedience, contrasting philosophies for the military citizenry and community. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this week. War college listeners. War college is me, Matthew Galt and Kevin Nodell. Is created by myself and Jason Fields. We will be back next week with more stories from behind the front lines. Stay safe until then.